Thank you, Anna. I want to look again if you've got your Bibles or iPhones or Androids open to that text, Deuteronomy 7, 6 specifically. We read, the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be people for his treasured possession. God chose the people of Israel, which if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that the people of Israel weren't the most faithful people. In fact, they were often unfaithful to God. They often didn't do what they were supposed to do. In fact, they would often turn their hearts to the idols of the land and the culture where they lived. They would worship Baal or the Asherah poles on the high places. The people of Israel were anything but faithful. So why did God choose Israel of all people? Well, he goes on to explain in our text in verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people, the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God chose, in his sovereign will, he chose the people of Israel, not because of anything they've done, but because God chose in his sovereign will to love them. He loves them because he loves them. And that's grace. As Kim talked about last week, grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve God's grace. It's simply a free gift, right? And this idea that, well, that, uh, election, and, and a lot of denominations don't want to talk about election. because It's in the Bible. It's actually quite, uh, it, it saturates much of the scripture if you read it, actually. But they don't want to talk about election. But as Presbyterians, we actually celebrate that because for us, the doctrine of election, this idea that God chooses us and loves us before we ever love him, that helps illuminate, that helps clarify, that helps communicate God's grace to us today. John Calvin explains it this way in his um, Institutes of the Christian Religion, and John Calvin's kind of the founder of the Presbyterian Church. He, he wrote these words in 1536 while he was in Geneva, Switzerland. He said, we shall never be clearly persuaded as we ought to be that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know his eternal election which illumines God's grace. This idea that God chooses us and loves us just as he chose the people of Israel helps illumine or helps clarify God's grace. And as you continue to read through the Bible, you're going to find that in Ephesians chapter 1, God tells a, a predominantly Gentile church, which are non-Jews, and I'm one of those. Um, I took one of those DNA tests like a long time ago for Father's Day, and it came back and said that, hey, you're from, I'm like 67% uh, Welsh-Irish and then uh, Scottish and English. I got no Jewish in me at all. And, and my wife took the test, and she's like almost all English. And let, so we told our kids, said, kids, this is why we don't tan. We will ne you wear the sunscreen. We are sunburn-oriented. There's no hope for us, right? So we have no chance of getting a tan. I got no Jewish in me, which that means I'm so grateful that God chooses, as we continue to read through the New Testament, he chooses Israel, yes, but he also chooses Gentiles, like the Gentiles in Ephesus, and Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. Yes, God's election helps illuminate God's grace. It helps us see that, well, God's grace is unmerited. We don't deserve it. It's simply a free gift. So what's the appropriate response to God's grace? Well, to find out, open your Bibles or your Androids or iPhones or whatever you use to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that uh, you inspired Paul so many years ago to write this 
beautiful letter to the house churches in Rome to encourage them in their faith, but also to guide them in their living. God, I pray that as we read these words, that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. In your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Romans chapter one, beginning with verse 16. Listen to God's word. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now what is this gospel that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What is this gospel exactly? The Greek word for gospel there is eugelion, Eugelion. And in ancient times, the Eugelion was literally the good news of victory that the Eugelistus or the evangelist would often bring from the battlefield to tell the king, we've won the victory. It's good news. So what is this good news, this gospel that Paul is not ashamed of exactly? Well, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that the first four books of the Bible of the New Testament are actually called the gospels, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called the gospels. And and they are good news because they tell the good news of Jesus. They tell the story of his life and his death and ultimately his resurrection where he won the victory on our behalf. Amen? That is good news. But when Paul's talking about the gospel, he's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because Paul wrote Romans before those guys wrote their gospels. So what's he talking about? What is Paul talking about exactly? What is this gospel that he's not ashamed of? The gospel that Paul will go on to explain is the good news that despite the fact that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God doesn't abandon us in our sin. He actually becomes one of us when God sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. He lives in perfect obedience to our heavenly father. Then he dies on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that our sins might be atoned for once and for all. And of course, the really good news is that he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf so we might have the assurance of eternal life, the gift of new life in him. It's the gospel is the good news of Jesus, specifically the good news of the cross that demonstrates God's great love for all of us. Paul explains it uh, in 2 Corinthians, which was a letter he actually wrote before Romans. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says it this way. For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus was without sin, to become sin. You see, Paul goes on to explain in Galatians that cursed is he who is hung on a tree, fulfilling uh, the the words of Deuteronomy. That when Jesus died, he became a curse for us. He who was without sin became sin for us so that we might become, so that we might have the right relationship with God. Thanks be to God. 
So what's the appropriate response to this gospel, this good news, this work of Christ, the righteousness of Christ that God offers to us? Well, it's faith. As Paul explains in verse 17 of our text, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, it's very interesting. In 1517, uh, Martin Luther was studying Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and, and he actually wrestled with the words, uh, the phrase specifically, the righteousness of God. He didn't like that term because the righteousness of God reminded him of his own unrighteousness. And in the penitential system of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, he was taught that when you confess a sin, you've got to go to a priest and confess that sin. And then the priest would give you some active penance that you would have to go do to, to prove your repentance from that past sin. But the problem was is that Martin Luther would go to confession and he would confess for hours. In fact, the priest one time told Martin, you're taking too much time. Other people need to come by, right? Speed it up a little bit. You know, it's not so bad. And then he would give some penance to do. And, and while Martin Luther was on the way to go do the penance, the, the act of repentance, right, that he would do, some act, you know, maybe so many rosaries or whatever it might be, some act of penance. As he's on the way to do it, he would sin again. He's like, man, I just can't get this right. I'm constantly unrighteous. He was burdened by his own unrighteousness. And so he hated that phrase, the righteousness of God. Until he began to study Romans 1.17. And this verse, his study of this verse, it changed his life. It ultimately helped launch the Protestant Reformation. Whereas Kim talked about last week, the fivefold cry of the Reformation was grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, glory to God alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and Scripture alone is our authority in faith and life as we seek to give all glory to God and God alone. And so as he was studying Romans 1.17, he came across this, these words of St. Augustine who had written centuries before that the righteousness of God, well, it's not our righteousness, it's the righteousness of God, an alien righteousness that God gives to us or imputes to us through faith. That Christ has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and then he offers us this right relationship with God that we simply receive through faith. That Jesus, who was right with God, died on a cross as, this, as the payment for our sins so that we could be in a right relationship with God that we simply receive through faith. Not a bunch of confessions or penance or acts of penance, just simply through faith. Faith to faith, as it says in our text. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, faith alone. Thanks be to God. It's not faith and works because I'd never have enough works, right? It's just by faith. But what is faith exactly? Because in the Presbyterian church, we say, you know, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. What is faith exactly? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, we actually had a great definition of what faith is. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Can you read that with me? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is, is being assured of what you hope for and having a conviction, a heartfelt conviction of what it is you ultimately believe, things that are often not seen. And thanks be to God that as we read through the Gospels, we can see that Jesus tells us it doesn't take a lot of faith. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, which was the smallest of seeds, you have a faith 
to move mountains. You have faith to do great things. It doesn't take a lot of faith. But our faith must be sincere. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice where our faith must reside, in your heart, not just your head. Now, I can believe a lot of things. I can have intellectual assent to say, yeah, I agree with that. I think that. I believe that. But have I given my heart to it? You see, in ancient times, they believed that you lived ultimately your life out of what was in your heart. That's why Jesus in Matthew 12 says to them, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, we know in the 21st century that the heart is an organ that pumps blood, right? And they knew that it pumped blood as well. But ultimately, what's in here? What's at the core of my belief? That's how I'm going to live my life. That's how I'm going to, that's going to guide my speech. It's going to guide my thoughts. It's going to ultimately guide my living. What's in here? What's in my heart? And faith can't just be be something up here if it wants to be transformative. No, true faith, saving faith, finds itself in here. Reminds me of the story of Charles Blondin, the great tightrope walker. Who, from, who was from France, he came to the United States and he set up a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And uh, 25,000 people came to see if this great tightrope walker could walk across Niagara Falls. And I, I gotta be honest with you, I don't think I'd wanna go see that because if he fell, it'd be tragic, right? But people were there, they wanted to see it. Can he do it? Because he boasted he could do it. Well, re- reportedly, it only took him 23 minutes to cross the great Niagara Falls, the windy Niagara Falls. If you've ever been to the Niagara Falls, like they give you like a poncho, like if you get close, like they get these little boats. You gotta wear a poncho because it's constantly spraying water on you, right? Despite all the water, despite all the spray, despite the wind, he was able to cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope that was less than two inches wide in less than 23 minutes. It was amazing. And he did it several times. One time he even pushed a wheelbarrow across. I think we got a picture of him pushing a wheelbarrow across. Anybody got that picture right there? There he is, he's pushing a wheelbarrow across the tightrope, across Niagara Falls. Well, every time he did it, people would applaud and go crazy. And he goes, all right, who thinks I can do it again? And I was like, yeah, you can do it. You're the best. You're the best ever. You could do it. He says, great. Then who wants to get in the wheelbarrow and go across with me? It was dead silent. Nobody was raising their hand on that one. You know, it's one thing to believe. You go, yeah, yeah, Charles Bologna, you're the best. You're the best. But it's another thing to put your life in the hands of another. Faith, true faith. Saving faith is about making the move from here to here. We give our life to Christ and we seek to live according to his words. Because we read through the Gospels and the book of Acts, we see that's exactly what the earliest disciples did. Peter, James, John, the Apostle Paul. As you read, you'll see that in Acts, Peter and John were arrested for their faith. James, the brother of uh, John was killed by the sword because of his faith. Paul, the apostle, was stoned and left for dead in Lystra because of his faith. And yet, miraculously, he was able to get back up and he continued to preach the gospel. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul knew that the gospel had the power to change lives. He had experienced it firsthand for Paul, as you remember, was originally Saul and he was on the road to Damascus to go kill Christians. But then the Holy Spirit and and the light of Christ shone on him and and he was convicted and he he turned around and did a 180 and he he went by Paul, you know, his his, uh, 
Roman name, and he began to, to preach the gospel and plant churches, and he wrote much of the New Testament. Yes, the gospel has the power to transform, to change a life, to take a, a selfish person and make them selfless and gratitude for the selfless love of Jesus Christ. It has the power to take a greedy person and make them generous and gratitude for the generous love of Jesus Christ. It has the, the power to take a self-righteous person and to humble them as they recognize in the gospel that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. It's the gospel has the power to change everyone, to change every life, to take an immoral, licentious, promiscuous person and make them want to be obedient to Christ out of gratitude for his obedience to death on a cross. It's the gospel has the power to change a life, but it's got to take a journey from here to here. So how does it take that journey? How can we make sure that our faith moves from just an intellectual ascent to something that's in our hearts, that we begin to live our lives out of what it is we believe, that we begin to bear the fruits of the Spirit as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How can we make sure we take that journey of faith? Well, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that faith, it's ultimately a work it's a work of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, specifically. It's interesting, in Romans 12, Paul will go on to write to say that each one of us has been given, given a different measure of faith. Paul will go on to, uh, or Jesus explains in Matthew 16, you know, Jesus asks his disciples kind of the big quiz, you know, the big pop quiz, who do people say that I am? And then they go, oh, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet. And he goes, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, quick with the, the answer, raises his hands, well, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And, and what does Jesus say? Well said, Peter, but this was not given to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. God is the one who reveals himself to us. God is the one who gives us eyes to see. And in Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells us that if we will seek, we will find. If we will knock, the door will be open to us. That if we ask, it will be given to us. And, and God will give us his Holy Spirit to anyone who asks for him. So if your faith is still up here and you know it needs to make that initial journey to down here, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you grow in your faith, you might have a transformative faith that lives out its faith every day. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you're here because your parents drug you, and you don't want to be here. Or, uh, you know, it's early, right? I want to be sleeping in. Cowboys are playing. It's 3.30. Don't worry. You're not going to miss it. But, uh, you know, you got other things you want to do on a Sunday morning. Your parents drag you. I used to get dragged to church all the time. Maybe you're here, and you don't want to be here. Maybe you're, you don't have enough faith to pray, because frankly, you got a lot of questions. I mean, how do you know people just make this stuff up, right? Like just a bunch of old people wrote a book and said, oh, yeah, that's the gospel, believe it. I mean, how do you know you can believe in the Bible? How do you know you can believe in the re resurrection? Is there evidence for that? Well, actually, on Wednesday nights, we're teaching a class uh, on the Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel was a, an award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune. His wife came to faith in Christ, and in frustration as an atheist, he decided he was going to research the claims of Christ, the claims of the Bible, and he, his intent was to disprove all of it. He's like, no, this can make sense. This isn't true. But as he began to do his research, as he began to look at the archaeology had to say and ancient manuscripts had to say and the life of the disciples and the testimonies of so many people, he began to realize the really only logical explanation for the life of the disciples is that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. 
And so if you've got questions like, how do we know we can believe in the Bible or how do we know we can believe in the resurrection? Come to our class on Wednesday nights at 6.30 in the parlor. Initially, we met in 304. It was uh, our first class was uh, last Wednesday. I had set up a room for 32 chairs. I thought that'd be plenty. We had over 50 people. I had to like steal chairs from the choir. I apologize later, confess my sin. I gave them back, gave the chairs back. But anyway, yeah, it's like you got, so now we're gonna be in the parlor. Much bigger room, more chairs, more people, and I've ordered more books. So I hope you can come, Case for Christ. And I sadly left my copy up there. I was gonna show it and wave it around. But anyway, Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, great book. If you've got those kind of questions, that book will provide many of those answers. But maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in the church. You went to vacation Bible school. I really can't think of a time when I didn't know about Jesus up here. And, and in high school, I made the commitment. I went from here to here, and I said, yeah, Lord Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Maybe you've already made that decision, but like Martin Luther, you know, every day you sin. I have yet to have a perfect day. Anybody here have a perfect day? Like, I get up, and it's pretty good in the morning, then I, I start talking to people, and it's trouble. It's like, no good. Ask my kids. Uh, yeah, so I have yet to have a perfect day, yet I, I want to be the kind of person who naturally bears the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How can I be that kind of person who has a faith that is evidence to everybody? I think the key is to, is to do what Jesus did. Or as Paul instructs us to do in Galatians 5 and 6, we need to walk by the Spirit, we need to sow to the Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that gives us faith. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to bear that kind of fruit. So how do we sow to the Spirit? How do we walk by the Spirit exactly? If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus did certain things and it's through those activities that the Spirit moved in his life and in the life of the earliest disciples. So what are the kinds of things that we should be doing to sow to the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. Well, if you look at Luke 4, you'll see that after Jesus was baptized, he went out into the wilderness and he fasted and prayed for 40 days. Now, you don't have to fast and pray for 40 days. In fact, I would not recommend that. You could actually die from doing that kind of thing. But when was the last time you spent some time in solitude with just God, talking to God, maybe doing like a 24-hour fast where you drink juice and liquids but no food, you know? And, and, and while Jesus was fasting, he was actually feasting, feasting on the word of God that he was meditating on. And we know this because when Satan came to tempt Jesus, he responded every time he rebuffed the temptations of Satan with the word of God. The first scripture he quotes, he says, man does not live on bread alone, but, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. When was the last time you spent some time really just meditating on the scripture, even memorizing the scripture so that it naturally overflows out of your heart from which your mouth will speak good news? and the love of God to others. It's if we want to walk by the Spirit, if we want to sow by the Spirit, we've got to do what Jesus did. We've got to spend time alone with God. We've got to spend time meditating on his word. And we need to do what he does in Luke 4. After the time in the wilderness, he goes to the synagogue and, and he reads Isaiah. And it says, as was his habit to do, he, he went to worship. And, and we need corporate worship because in worship, our focus is on God and God alone. And we're able to gain proper perspective on who God is and who God's calling us to be and, and what God's up to and, and that we might obediently follow God. Yes, Jesus spent time alone with God. He meditated on his word. He memorized the word. He, he, uh, he went to worship. And then finally, what did he do? He spent a lot of time praying. If you continue to read Luke, you'll get to Luke 6. And before he selects 12 of his disciples to become apostles, we're told he spends an entire night in prayer. 
In fact, usually Jesus' rhythm, her sacred rhythm, was that after he does something great like feeding the 5,000, he would go alone to a place to pray. Before he's betrayed by Judas, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica that we should pray without ceasing. We should have this running conversation with God. Throughout the day, we're asking God, God, guide me. God, lead me. God, help me. God, forgive me. Yes, our prayer should be brief, frequent, and intense. Because true faith, saving faith, it always leads to action. I love the way Martin Luther says it this way. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. If you're with us this summer, you know we went through James and we talked about it. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his epistle that faith without deeds is dead. True faith, saving faith, has taken the journey from here to here and it's lived out in our lives in such a way that others may see our good deeds and give praises to our Father who's in heaven. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, Paul writes that the righteous will live by faith. Quoting Habakkuk. I pray, Lord, that as those who've been made righteous by what you have done for us on the cross, that we might live by faith, that our faith in you might be evident to all, that we might live in such a way that it's clear that you are Lord of our lives, that we've not only given our our minds to you, but we've given our hearts to you. And out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of our heart, we live our lives today, seeking to bring all glory and honor to you. And God, I know there might be people here this morning who who don't want to be here. Maybe they've got questions. I pray they would come to the class on Wednesday nights at 6.30 in the parlor to have some of those questions answered. But I also know there may be people here who've never made the journey from the head to the heart. I pray in the quietness of the moment they would do that. In Revelation 3, we're told that you knock on the door and if we will open that door, the door of our heart, you will come in and be with us and us with you and you will dine with us forever, for all eternity. Lord, help us to open our hearts to you, to say, yes, Lord Jesus, help us to walk according to your word, to be the kind of people who live by faith, a heart-transforming faith that seeks to give all glory and honor to you. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.